Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Welcome back, Pretty Mental family. We loved you. We loved you. We still love you. <laughs> we love you. We missed you. That's where the past tense was coming up. Uh, we have loved you. We do love you. And we will love you. Forever. Hello, hello, beautiful people. Today we had a really invigorating conversation on all things burnout and liberating ourselves from the systems of burnout that are all around us. And we did this with the incredibly insightful Dr. Azad of Tipping Point Liberation Coaching. So I, if burnout is something you guys are struggling with, feeling of powerlessness, um, anxiety and depression, feeling stuck, anything like that going on in your life. Not even knowing where to look. You just know something's got to change. Right. I think that this conversation will have something to offer you. So. Yeah, this is an incredibly relevant conversation for many, 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 many reasons. I mean, coming off the back of the last podcast that came out and I don't know anyone who's not experiencing some level of burnout right now with the transition that we're going through as a society. Yeah. The culmination of everything. I think that this is an incredibly relevant conversation for, I think everyone will get something out of this truly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this has definitely been going on in our system for a very, very long time. And we're definitely at a tipping point, which is the name of his practice is so relevant uh, mm-hmm. tipping point liberation coaching. It definitely feels like we're at a tipping point where people are actually giving themselves permission to acknowledge what they have felt. Yeah. Yes. And hopefully this conversation really empowers you to go a little bit deeper into that question and open your heart to it. And I encourage you guys to share this with anyone in your life that you think may need to hear it. Share it with your communities, your social media communities, share it with everyone. So they know I, something that I said in this podcast is like, a lot of us don't even know that something is wrong. We're just so used to functioning off of these certain programs, functioning off the hamster wheel that we do feel some kind of discomfort, but we've normalized that discomfort because it's the only way we know how to live. And I think the more that we can circulate these kinds of conversations, the more people will be like, hmm, hold on. That sounds like me. Oh, there's another way. Oh, it doesn't have to be like this. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be like that. You know, I think that a lot of us are living these lives that there's just, we could be juicing more out of the life that we currently have. And that, that doesn't mean striving for more. It means allowing ourselves to be and to feel joy and to feel bliss right where we are. Absolutely. With that pretty mental family, take in a deep breath with us. And tune in. 
calling in our higher selves, calling in all of the energies that walk with us in this lifetime, calling in the universe. We open our hearts, we open our throats to whatever wants to come through. We lend ourselves as vessels, as channels for the highest healing of ourselves, our community, everyone who comes in contact with this message and for the planet. The portal is now open. Dr. Azad. Hello. <laughs> Welcome Doc to Pretty Mental. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have this conversation with you. So we are today, we have on the podcast, Dr. Azad of Tipping Point Liberation Coaching. And we are looking forward to having a conversation on all things burnout, which is a really relevant topic for our society. I know we have been going through the mass resignation. Um, so I know this is something that a lot of people can relate to, and it is 1 million percent tied into the mental health conversation. I mean, I know I've worked with people who seem to be struggling from depression, and then as soon as their schedule changes or they step into a lifestyle that is more aligned for them, suddenly those symptoms are gone. So um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're super excited to have you on. And maybe if you could just take a moment to introduce yourself to our community and let them get to know a little bit about you. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Paula. Um, so yeah, like they said, I'm Azad John Salimi. That's my full name. And um, I'm a board certified family medicine and urgent care doctor. And I practice here in Brooklyn, New York. Um, in addition to that, I'm also a burnout and resiliency coach. Um, and I really came to this work through personal experience. I like to um, start the conversation with new clients um, with the fact that I have left my profession twice, I re-entered my profession twice, and I burned out twice. Um, and so I like to think that I learned some things along the way. Um, and ultimately, um, I now find balance working less clinical hours and then coaching uh, the other half of my time and helping other people sort of finally get out of cycles of burnout and, uh, and achieve their own balance. Wow. That's beautiful. We definitely need more of that conversation happening in our world. I know that yeah. many, many people have, I, and it starts in the educational system we just feel the pressure to function like machines and produce and uh, work through schedules that are not necessarily aligned with natural human cycles of sleep and rest, just basic things that we might need in order to be able to function effectively. So, yeah, yeah I'm wondering if you could maybe just kind of, I'm curious to get to hear your definition of burnout and how you have learned to identify burnout, maybe what are some warning signs, how you learn to recognize it in yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think every coach and every health practitioner is gonna have a slightly different definition of burnout, but I think we're all centering on the same uh, concept. Um, in my experience, I guess burnout is a state of being continually exhausted uh, in a situation that you feel like you can't change. Um, and I keep my definition of burnout pretty general like that because it, it then it, it remains widely applicable across industries, across types of jobs. 
You can even have burnout that is not work-related. It can be interpersonal. It can be family stuff. It can be with your own like healthcare and what's going on with your body. Uh, people with chronic illness burn out that way as well. Um, and so thinking about being continually exhausted in a situation that you feel like you can't change. So I would advise like listeners to, um, in terms of being aware of their own burnout or possibility for burnout. So when you're feeling like this and you're no longer able to enjoy the things that you want to enjoy, uh, ask yourself if you're burning out. Um, if you're also feeling like this, what I mean by this is continually exhausted um, and you're experiencing stress somatically. And what that means is like physical manifestations of stress. So migraines, muscle cramps, upset stomach, insomnia, um, to name a few, then, you know, I would ask yourself, ask myself if I'm burning out, um, if I have those symptoms and I'm feeling that burnout state of being continually exhausted. And I feel like I can't get out. Um, that's a big part of burnout is feeling, uh, whether obligated or financially bound or in other ways, uh, feeling like you cannot change your situation. So you have to just keep grinding. Um, and, a lot of people ask me, like, what is the first step if someone realizes they're burned out? Like, what would you advise them to do? Um, and I think, like, the most important first step is to realize that you're not alone. Um, burnout, specifically, is a very isolating process, especially because of the shame associated with it, um, especially because um, in a lot of work cultures, um, it's not encouraged to talk about it. It's not encouraged to show vulnerability. It's not encouraged to let other people know that something is hard or that you're struggling. Um, so, you know, the first step is to realize you're not alone. There are a lot of, even if you don't have other people in your life physically who are burning out, there are a lot of online support groups for burned out professionals. Um, and finding a community amongst people who are feeling the way you do uh, is a great first step to rescuing yourself. How does it look working in medicine and at the same time being a coach? Cause I feel like it's almost like you have the Western and the Eastern perspective of things. Um, yeah. How does that look like when you have clients who, who come in, are you like meditate and here are some, here's medicine. <laughs> like, how does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I like to, you know, like, um, there is a boundary, uh, in my coaching practice. Like I'm not, their physician and their coach in that capacity. Um, and I don't have much overlap in terms of like prescribing medication for high blood pressure and also helping you like change your life so that you're no longer feeling burnt out. Um, so my coaching clients are like non-medical coaching clients. However, there's a lot of like medical advising that goes on, especially for my clients that come in with who have uh, somatic effects of stress. You know, they're having physical symptoms of this thing. So I rely on a lot of my medical background to help them manage those symptoms. But you're right, there is a combination of, I think like Eastern and Western um, uh, healing modalities and therapeutic techniques um, of particular importance to me is meditation and mindfulness. Um, it's something I've been meditating since I was nine years old. Um, I was fortunate enough to have like a member of my family who's a Buddhist and she taught me, started teaching me to sit when I was very, very young. And then she would take me to monasteries on the weekends as a teenager for like silent retreats and stuff. So I think with managing stress and my clients, I'm able to help them not only like medically and practically with like adjusting their schedule and not being overcommitted, 
and overextended, but also helping people to, um, a lot of the work I do with changing one's mindset uh, has to do with helping people to meditate and teaching people mindfulness techniques and biofeedback techniques, especially for people with anxiety and depression. I find that um, a significant portion of my coaching practice is people that are burnt out who also have anxiety and depression. Mm. Um, and those are things I have personal experience with as well. You know, I um, had depression for a number of years. Um, so it's not something that I just understand conceptually uh, as a doctor, or as a practitioner, as a coach. It's something that I know because I know what it feels like to be in that anxious, depressed place. Could we get into the story of your of how you were how you got burnt out, what that looked like and how you peeled yourself out of it? I think that kind of like the more like the grittier parts of our stories are the things that helps people really relate to or see themselves in us. So yeah, if you're yeah. open to it, I'd love to hear about what that journey looked like. Yeah, totally. Um so thinking about like the two different distinct times that I burned out really hard. Um, I, after residency, um, I was a physician in um, a federally qualified healthcare center in Portland, Oregon. Um, very, very, very meaningful work. Um, but as a lot of people listening will understand, uh, you know, we just don't have enough primary care doctors um, especially uh, working with underserved communities in this country. And so um, there can just be, uh, it's, the situation is like ripe for burnout for doctors and nurses and PAs and nurse practitioners that go into primary care, especially in underserved settings, just because there aren't enough of us. Um, and so you can, after, you know, a couple of years of that, it can be overwhelming it can start to feel unsafe because patient load can get just so high that you're not really giving the time you want to each individual patient because there are time constraints, you know? Um, so I did, I worked at that clinic for a little more than three years. Um, and after that, I took an eight month sabbatical uh, before resuming any other type of job. I also moved across the country. I came back to the East coast, which is where I'm from. Um, and I was just so, so tired. I knew I was burnt out even before I finished the three years there, like in the, you know, in the, in the midst of it, because like I said earlier, I wasn't really able to enjoy the things that I usually enjoy. Um, and also another big part of burnout is compassion fatigue. Um, mm. you know, when you're burning out and you're not able to change the situation, you just keep burning out and it gets worse and worse, you know? Uh, empathy can go down. Um, and I found that there was a little bit of compassion fatigue that was happening. And I knew that, you know, when I was done with that job contract, I needed a major break just to reset. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I actually um, went to Southeast Asia for several months. Um, I didn't do any medical practice. Um, and I really, really, really turned off that part of the brain for a little while to allow it just to like heal and reset. Um, and then when I came back, I went to, uh, I moved to, here to New York and I started working in an urgent care practice, um, which is its own kind of um, stressful. Uh, but um, I think, you know, within the first year of that, I burned out again um, because in that practice, the numbers were just way too high. I was seeing on a good day, I was seeing 40 patients a day myself. On a bad day, I was seeing 70 patients a day myself. And this is a 12 hour shift. 
Um, and, you know, doing that four to five times a week was like, that's another situation ripe for burnout. Um, and so that, you know, I left that job and needed to take a break from, from that kind of intense clinical medicine uh, for a while. And rather than just stop working entirely, uh, I had a neighbor who was uh, in management uh, with a telemedicine company. And he's like, hey, come and you know, check this out. You, know, you can work from home, uh, still use your medical skills, but it, it's just a different energy to it. And so um, I started doing that just part-time um, while I took a break from like seeing patients in person and really intense um, hours. Um, and then eventually I, I, you know, got another brick and mortar medical job, but I kept the telemedicine job, which was doing like nights and weekends. Sometimes it's just like a very interesting, very different type of arrangement that, you know, I wasn't exposed to earlier in medical school or, uh, or residency. So it was working for me. I knew it was a special thing. So I kept it even when I went back to seeing patients in person at another job. Um, and, you know, ultimately, uh, two years later, I left that, uh, corporate medical job and, I just became full-time with my telemedicine job. Um, I did that for a few months and um, realized that the sort of informal coaching that I had been providing a lot of my patients for like years, not just like treating them for high cholesterol and high blood pressure, but also like motivational interviewing and helping people make major life changes. Um, I met another coach and she was like, you know, this is marketable. Uh, people um, get paid to coach others and which I, I didn't realize. And so, you know, I started a small business um, last year uh, doing coaching. And so that allowed me to decrease my hours with telemedicine um, and spend a little bit more of my time just doing coaching, like just taking care of the person, not the medical, um, which has been really rewarding for me. So I don't feel burnt out, um, even though I burnt out multiple times, I feel like I'm reach some sort of balance where, you know, half the time I can do the medical stuff, which has its own stresses, like built in, it's innate, but I can manage that because it's not all of my time. Um, and the other half of my time is coaching um, and dealing with, uh, and, and being able to really take my time with the clients. That's a really big part of not feeling burnt out in the work that I do now is because I don't really have time constraints with like my coaching clients. We can spend as much or as little time as we need to. Um, and so it's really, it's really like person-centered, really heart-focused. It's really tailored to that person's experience and the time that they need. I think it's so powerful that you are a doctor and a coach because I've been dealing with the listeners who have been listening to us, they know with something, some, some kind of something, um, ghost dis-ease. In my body, I don't like saying disease because I don't want to own it. I don't, that's not my identity. I understand. But, yeah. And I feel like I hit a wall of, I don't blame the doctors, but I blame the system. I feel like the system has failed us because a lot of us have these chronic situations. And, you know, I've been given different medications, different blood tests, different this, different that. And, they always just want to look at the symptoms and they never, it just does, they don't look at the humanity in you, you know, they don't actually get to the root of like, okay, let's actually start to 
like peel back the layers of everything that could possibly be. And I start getting angry at all these doctors because I'm like, I feel like you just want to take my money because no one's actually helping me over here. They're just recycling the same thing over and over and over again. But I don't think I don't blame the doctors because I don't think that they know better. They've been trained Mm. under a system that's just like we're here to just like, you know, I mean, I don't know that much about the medical system, but we're here to bring you in, pathologize it, diagnose you, medicate you, bring you in, pathologize it, diagnose you, medicate you. And it doesn't ever get to the spirit of, of things. I think it's like to go through as many numbers as possible is kind of how the system is set up. I experienced that too, just as a therapist, feeling so frustrated when um, I have clients that come to me and after one session with a psychiatrist, which is the providers that prescribe the medication, after one session with a psychiatrist, never having gone to therapy before, which therapy is a, con- a situation in which the whole context is taken into account, the whole picture is taken into account. Um, they're prescribed anti- SSRIs like immediately off the cot, like imme- right before we even like, do you have a toxic relationship in your life? Um, are you burnt out? <laughs> like it may not be that we need an SSRI if it really was that one size fits all type of answer, then why do these symptoms seem to go away as soon as we change our lifestyle, as soon as our relationships get a little bit healthier, as soon as we work on our self-confidence, right? So humanity is just so much more complex than a lot of these systems for the sake of efficiency would like to have us believe. Um, And I think that, I guess that ends up leading to burnout on both sides because whether you're in a medical field or not in a medical field, we are very much addicted to this idea of continuous, endless growth. It's almost like this obsession with growth and that we have as a society. I don't, it's not, it's not sustainable. But we equate growth to productivity because there's still, I was actually reading literally only a few sentences yesterday before I got distracted, but in Gary Zukov's seat of the soul, I think is the Mm -hmm. title. And he was talking about how before we would talk, we would see the, um, you know, survival of the fittest would be the people who had the most complex brains and the people who would be able to, um, I guess how we translate it now is like work their way up ladders, but what we never took into account of how evolution is now working is the all encompassing being. It's not just about doing is how you're going to get places. Now it's like an internal growth an internal, you know, so, so when we think about how am I going to succeed in life? How am I going to make everything in life be okay? And I'm going to, you know, be worthy. It's like, okay, I got to get this, 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 this done. I got to start my own business. I got to make sure that I have this by this age, you know, all these things. And it's funny that we're having this podcast with you right now, because literally the episode that goes out today that we recorded last week is about my body kind of breaking down on um, the week before. And during that time I was, I couldn't really do anything. And I had these feelings first of like guilt and grief and then anger and whatever. But I was in bed for so long that I finally got to this place, which felt like a total psychedelic journey. But I got to this place that was like, wait, we've never really considered like being like hardcore feeling and being and allowing that to be 
our growth and how are we ever going to get over any of our traumas if we're not living in the absolute present moment, allowing all of the things that our body is storing come up and feel it, you know? Um, and if that hadn't happened, I've been, you know, my symptoms have been just hard enough that I've been able to push through them where I like go on a run, I go to the sauna, I do what I need to do and I'm good. And I feel like a lot of people in our society have symptoms that are just hard enough that they can keep pushing through them, but we're not growing inside out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And we're encouraged to push through, um, things that might not feel right. Um, we're encouraged to essentially dissociate from the body signals, um, in the, in the name of productivity or in the name of, um, like appearing successful, appearing confident, not looking vulnerable. Um, yeah, we're encouraged to focus on the doing rather than the being for sure. And I think like, you know, addressing what you said earlier, but like systemically in terms of the healthcare system, I mean, I'm, I'm one of the more progressive thinkers, I think on this in terms of physicians, but I don't think that we can run healthcare as a for-profit business and still get the mental health outcomes that we would like to have for a society, you know? Um, and I'll just, I'll just leave it there. Um, I think that, yeah, I think, you know, if the goal is to take care or one of the main goals is to take care of each other and, and of everyone in terms, especially with regards to mental health, then a system that is for-profit medical doesn't serve that purpose because there are huge pockets. There are large numbers of people that are left out and uh, it's essentially like neglectful. So that's one of the things that was coming up for me during that time is I was getting so angry because I feel like I, like a lot of people don't even know that they're being put on this hamster wheel. They're just trying to survive. And when you're surviving, you're not thinking about the meaning of life. You're just trying to make sure you have no. dinner and breakfast and a, and a roof over your head. So I'm sitting there and getting so angry because I feel I'm not a pessimist. You know, I'm a sometimes delusional optimist. I believe that everything here is really, truly for us. Mm. And at the same time, as I was sitting there, I was getting so angry because I'm like, how are we ever like, where do, where do we even start? So many people are being overlooked. Like I'm lucky enough that I've been able to pay for acupuncture and pay for different supplements. And I have the time to look up, you know, what I could possibly have. And I have internet connection and then all these things. And then I think of people who don't even they're barely scraping by. How are they ever going to take care of their health? And when you don't have your health, you don't have your life. Nothing is worth it if you don't have your health. Yeah. Everything falls apart when your health starts to go. This can be really, really difficult to maintain. Yeah. You know? and, and talking about being in survival mode, you know, if I think some of what you've referred to earlier is like the process of self-actualization, like that true, like you've, you know, evolving, especially like the internal parts of ourselves, you know, survival and self-actualization, like they, they're not neighbors. You know what I mean? Like if you're in survival mode, you're worried about like getting your basic needs met because you're having difficulty getting your basic needs met. Um, 
and then you know being able to think about like life on the whole and like the meaning of society and like our role on the planet and all this kind of stuff it's really hard for people that are just like trying to make sure their children eat tonight you know um so yeah another thing that is not uh, helping us uh, towards a goal of like you know good mental health for all people i wonder how people could start i'm about to sneeze excuse me mm-hmm. bless you <laughs> bless you <laughs> i wonder how people could start um rescuing themselves as you said earlier that that, that phrase really stuck with me mm. uh, from what you said earlier like how can people start like these systems are here so like we just gotta fucking like start rescuing ourselves regardless you gotta find a way so yeah that's a great question um it absolutely i use the word like very intentionally it absolutely is rescue um because when you're burned out you know like there are two choices like to keep going in the direction it's burning you out or like to change something right um and hopefully you're in a position or or, or have the wherewithal to be able to do so but you know before i address that i think it's worth addressing that many people don't feel welcome to this conversation about burnout um because either they don't want to step away from their work or ramp down how much they're working or they simply cannot and that's an equity issue like i can't tell a single mom that is working two jobs to cut back on her hours because she literally can't you know it's a survival issue right and that's systemic that's a the system has put her in that position almost in every case um and so my practice is about recognizing the very real limits that keep you feeling stuck and to help you establish even in small ways your own sense of dignity in your work um, because that's what that's what a big part of burnout is is that you you don't you lose your dignity um, in the work or in the responsibilities you've been given because it is mistreating you, you know, because it is so harmful to you and there's a lot of shame and guilt because you keep returning to it every day knowing that it's harmful for you. Um, so a lot of us are hard on ourselves for even being in this situation. I know myself, I blamed myself for years for ending up again and again in doctor jobs that were burning me out. Um, and so to answer your question about rescue, you know, how can people start rescuing themselves? I think awareness is, is the biggest first step um, spreading awareness about burnout, um, and the dangers of burnout. And essentially like we are, I think we're in an epidemic of burnout, especially in the United States right now. Um, and I think once people are able to acknowledge and it's because it's become, uh, more acceptable in the workplace to talk about this, um, there's still places you go to where like, it's, taboo to really talk about feeling this way or burnout or the negative aspects of the job while you're at the job. Um, so I think raising awareness about this thing, it's the elephant in the room, it's affecting so many of us, um, is a good first step to rescue because then you, it helps people to create a little bit more community around it. Um, and I think with emerging community, 
uh, with intentions to change work culture and work habits, then we get the people, the movers and shakers who are in a position to change, the managers, the CEOs, the shareholders, the you know directors of organizations and businesses to actually ins like institute cultural change at the workplace where expectations can start to be changed or they can just have a more human focused approach to work. I mean, there are certain businesses that are already doing this. I just think that we need to see that a little bit more. So it's not just about the individual worker rescuing themselves. Um, they're not always able to fully execute that. But I think if we get people in a position to more heavily influence the systemic structures, um, that can really help change everything. Oh, and the last part is like, you know, if you're, if you have the resources or if you have proximity to someone who is coaching in this way, getting a coach can help. Yeah. Cause a lot of times people don't even know where to start. They don't even know what questions to ask because they've been running off a program. What's been fed yeah. to them. You know, I think a lot of what's happening right now with the mass resignation is I believe maybe enough people have been, you know, with the pandemic, everyone's been at home and moving less, having to drive less, exerting less energy. Maybe, maybe not. That's not everyone's reality, but some people's realities. And then they start to ask questions of like, what do I actually want to do here? What am I, what am I meant to do here? What is my purpose here in this lifetime? Or maybe not even purpose, but there's got to be more. There's just got to be more than what has mm -hmm. been fed to me this entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, you know, some people come to those questions earlier in life than other people. You know, there's got to be more for me out there. But I would say to the listeners that if that's a persistent um, feeling you have or sentiment, you're waking up every day thinking, I'm just going through the motions, or you're going to bed every night, dreading the next day, again, thinking, I just have to do this, even though I don't want to. Um, there's help out there, there's help and there's community available to help you um, to change your life. And a lot of people think that they cannot change their lives, you know, and it's not that you wake up tomorrow and you quit your job and move to a new city. Not everyone is able to, uh, you know, have such like swift uh, changes, but I'll give you an example. You know, I had a client who was able to make small changes, um, that would help her, that helped her change her mindset, such as she eventually was able to make some career changes. So this is a lady who um, has a two-year-old son and she's married um, and she had a job that was really, really heavily burning her out, but it was a job that was um, in service to other people. She did work in schools, that's as specific as, as I'll get. Um, and so she was a, a job where she was in service to other people. So feeling burnt out with that, there was also huge guilt associated with that because she's like, look, first of all, I shouldn't be feeling like this. My job is really important. I work in schools. This is really necessary. I can't burn out. I can't leave. I can't change. It's really critical that I keep doing the work I'm doing. There aren't enough of us doing it. So there's this huge guilt about like even thinking, contemplating, changing such that she could feel better every day. Um, and I, when we started our coaching relationship, I asked her, I was like, you know, you know, name, tell me one thing yesterday that you did that was just for yourself, that wasn't related to your job, to your marriage, to your toddler. 
Um, and there was nothing, no aspect of her day was just for her. Um, and I was like, okay, so, you know, we'll start small. I want you to take, if you can, five minutes or 10 minutes out of your day, every day where you could just do something that's just for you. If it's like having a bowl of ice cream or sitting somewhere quietly and reading your favorite magazine that you never get to do, even for five or 10 minutes, I was like, it's gotta be one thing that's just for you. Um, again, I do this with clients to help sort of form new neural pathways because we get stuck in a pattern um, and we don't know how to operate differently sometimes. And so she was able to, like in the middle of her day, she started taking like a 10 minute bath and she hadn't drawn a bath and sat in warm water in years. And it was like one of her favorite things, but I guess she sort of forgot about it because there was just no time and no space in her life to do this. Um, and then that progressed to, you know, rather than driving to go pick up her son from preschool or from daycare every day, she got on her bike with a baby carrier and like rode there because she loved bike riding again, something she hadn't done in a very long time. But that ride to pick up her son was just for her. You know, she didn't have to, she wasn't taking care of anyone but herself. And it was something she really enjoyed doing and helped her to manifest joy again. Um, and so these small changes were ways that she could get used to rewarding herself um, because most, if not all of my clients arrive with a mindset of shame towards or feeling undeserving of reward. And that includes rest. And so a huge part of my work is like shifting that mindset. Um, and once that mindset is changed, you're better able to uh, make choices in your life that you feel more empowered to choose for you and know that everything else is going to be okay. Things aren't going to fall apart. If I nourish myself, you know, things at my job aren't going to completely go to hell if I work less or if I decide to leave, you know, um, when you're burnt out, there is a feeling of like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and there's just no way you can change because bad things are going to happen. We're programmed to think that I think, you know, when we've been working so hard that we cannot change, we cannot leave because bad things are going to happen. So with this client, you know, she eventually left her job, um, stayed in the same profession, but uh, worked in a very different kind of environment um, and felt empowered to make those choices because she developed a habit of choosing for herself again, which she stopped doing years prior. Mm. God, I think it's with the social media culture that we have right now too, it is, it's hard to even know, I would imagine for a lot of people, you know, that they even are burnt out. Cause I see memes all the time that make fun of being burnt out. And I just imagine people like, oh yeah, I relate to that. I feel seen. And then they go to the next meme. Oh, I relate to that. I feel seen, but it's, it's, it's taken in such a, a humorous way that do you actually realize that this is an actual problem that it's, mm. this is, it's not, you know, it's not okay to be running on such little sleep and it's not okay to be detesting your reality. And it's not okay to like, just, I mean, I don't want to say it's not okay. That's a tall statement, but I don't question it. You know, if you're miserable and you're just trying to make it to a certain age till you retire, that breaks my spirit. Yeah. Thinking of people who are like that. Cause I'm like, you, you, you had a whole life you had a whole life you could have enjoyed. You had a whole life you could have, you know, 
you could have actualized yourself. You could have gone and adventured and done things that fed your soul and you could have been successful off of it. But I don't like people don't even know where to begin with that. So I think it's just this like learned helplessness of, I don't know, I just need to make money. And well, look at all these memes and everyone around me relates to it. So I think this is just what everyone is kind of going through. And this is just what life is. And now it's time for me to go to bed and then wake up and then do it all over again. Yeah, it's it's a myth, you know, and social media reinforces that myth that everyone else is dealing with it and it's fine. And I'm the only one, or I shouldn't feel this way, or I'm not entitled to complaining about it, or I'm not entitled to indulging the fact that I don't feel good doing yeah. this thing. And this know? is just how it is. This is, this is how it this always is. How is. It this is, is life. how yeah. it always is. Exactly. And I think it's, you know, we have to be careful with social media and I'm not one of the people that's like, oh my God, turn off your social media. It's bad for you. Um, even though like it can be in some ways, but you know, I, I think social media is fine, but I think you, we really get stuck in these thought loops where we are looking at other people's lives and we think that they're not struggling, you know, because it's not cool to go on Instagram and to tell people how much you're struggling. I'm seeing it happen a lot more now. People are dancing with vulnerability and it's a beautiful thing. Um, but there's still, especially in like people that are like high-performing professionals, um, vulnerability is not something that is embraced. And so we see every day this myth being reinforced that like, oh, most people just deal with it. They just like get through it. You know what I mean? Everybody feels like this, but you know, the people that are successful are the ones that can just handle it without any help. You know, mm -hmm. it's a myth. That's not true. And it's because everyone feels, uh, I would say most people feel pressure to project a, uh, an image of effortlessness of success of not being in trouble of it not being that hard or if it was i took care of it i got through it i'm better now look at me on the other side um a lot of people don't want to talk about the process and about the hard parts um yeah yeah that's something that i saw when i got to la I started being around people who had bigger, like pretty large followings. They were influencers. They on their, their grid, their Insta and in Instagram grid. It was like amazingness, Be like anyone from afar who didn't, you know, fully know their entire story would be like, Oh my God, what? Like, I want, I want that. I want what they have. And they're so perfect. And like, flawless and they look like they probably don't even go through that much. And then I was able to be around them and see the inside scoop. And a lot of these people were, could barely even pay their rent. A lot of these mm. people didn't even like, I got to see burnout on their end. I got to see the absolute pressure of them of having to appear a certain way. And again, I just get angry again. Cause I'm like, what are all these lies? We're just like volleyballing back and forth to each other. When are we all just like, when is this going to crumble? And I think it's starting to crumble for sure. And it's been crumbling a lot of these illusions. Yeah. And I think conversations like this are really important because I want people to hear this. Like we're all going through the same thing, yeah. not, you know, to different degrees, different levels, different experiences, different flavors, but the human experience is, is we're all going through a, like very similar things and that you're not, you're not alone.
Yeah. Especially like in, especially in, in countries and societies that don't have a very robust social safety net. Um, and what I mean by that is like a social system where like, if you get sick and are unable to work, there's a little bit more government support. Or if you have like, you know, a child that has special needs and it takes a lot more of your time, you're not able to sort of like stay at the office all these hours and stuff like that. There's a little bit more support from the state to take care of those things. Um, and just like more accessible mental health care for everybody, you know what I mean? If that's what I call like a social safety net or, or important aspects of a social safety net. And if you're living in places that don't have much of that, the pressure to just keep performing and keep pushing through burnout is not just, um, it's not just a superficial one because I want to keep up appearances. And again, it's an issue of survival. Some people think I will not make rent if I'm not at this job the way this job demands of me. Or, you know, my kids need so-and-so, I have to pay for this. And they can't get that if I don't just keep nose to the grindstone and keep burning myself out. Um, so I'm going to live a really unhappy life because I don't have any other means of addressing the needs of me or of my family or of my loved ones. And so the pressure is, is economic, especially, I think, here in the United States, because if something goes wrong, you know, many families fall to the bottom economically very quickly because we don't have a robust social safety net to help people when they're in trouble. You're on your own in a lot of ways. Paul, I wish, I, I wish oh, yeah. we had more answers for solving it. I think that one of the things that's been coming up for me a lot lately is... Um, like I grew up being a high achiever and feeling like, you know, just really fully embracing the thought of like, I have to get A's. I have to, you know, do this. I have to be responsible. I have to do all these things. And in many ways, as speaking to what you're saying, we kind of do. But I do think that there is space somewhere in there. If we get curious enough to identify the places where we're holding ourselves hostage with the half dues, where we could start surrendering some of them, maybe not all of them, but some of them. And that's a shift I've been feeling in myself lately, just kind of spiritually, energetically of like, I find that conditioned part of me being like, I have to. And then I'm pausing long enough to be like, mm -hmm. but like, I, what if I don't? You know, what if I don't do it perfectly? What, what if I don't do it with like, you know, I, I saw something I wrote to apply to this club when I was like in ninth grade and they were like, why should we pick you? And I, in there, I'm like, because I strive for excellence in all that I yeah. do. And now I'm like, why? Like I was trying so hard. Now I see, I'm like, I don't want to, I honestly, I don't want to strive for excellence in everything I do. Like I kind I strive of strive for mediocrity. I strive for mediocrity. And that's something I actually have ran across that, like more people talking about giving up on the American dream mm -hmm. or being like, what if I just want to like we became allergic to the word mediocre because everything was so much about production 
And so like anything that wasn't absolute self-sacrifice and absolute the highest achievement meant that you weren't valuable as a person. And now I see this kind of like pushback happening. It's it's small right now, but I'm sure it's going to keep growing of people being like, I don't like, I don't have to, I don't want to feel like I, I have to prove my excellence to anybody anymore. What, yeah. What I, I mean, I, 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 I feel you 100% with that. It's like, especially like when we're young, we're just like, it's drilled into us. Like try as hard as you can do as best as you can be the, the head of the, the top of the class or the, you know, best in your grade or whatever it is. I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that people should stop striving. It's just, what are you striving for? You talk about striving for excellence as a ninth grader. I mean, I think that today we should help people to strive for joy. You know, if we had a more joy focused work ethic, then I think a lot, a lot of us would be more immediately in jobs and in positions that might not be paying us what society tells us we should make but it's nourishing us in a way that like nothing else really can, you know? So, I mean, striving for joy versus striving for excellence are like very, very different things. And I think that, you know, we glorify, as you all mentioned, this hustle hard mentality and that comes with a lot of self-sacrifice. And that mentality is really commonplace. And so self-sacrifice, I think like you're alluding to has become an expectation. Um, the question is like, how do we convince people, um, that striving for excellence, doing the best you can, not just doing the best you can, but being the best possible is not the way to happiness, especially young people who haven't been out there in the workforce. They're still in school. They're still sort of planning their lives out. You know, it might be hard to convince someone that like mediocrity or, not killing yourself to be the best at whatever is actually going to give them the things that they want in life. You know, I don't have the answer for that, but I'm I'm just thinking of like my younger self and people that are, that are 21 right now, you know, how do you tell them like, it's okay. You know, you don't have to like break yourself over this thing to be the best and to put out as much as possible and be as prolific as possible. And you're still going to be okay. I mean, where are the examples? We need more examples, I guess, of people that are happy and have not and are successful and have not been self totally self-sacrificial. I think to be honest, I still cringe when I when I hear or use the word mediocrity because I'm so conditioned. Like, yeah. There's a part of me that's waking up, but I still hear it. And I'm like, oh, but that's not I don't really mean that. It <laughs> like, sounds like a bad word. Yeah, it's like, like it sounds kind of- like a bad word. Um, I think I'm still figuring out the language to use around this because. It's not that, for example, when I do my counseling work, my therapy work, I want to show up as fully for anybody that I'm working with and give them from the bottom of my heart the best possible energy that I have available to give to them. And that there's nothing quote unquote mediocre about that. Maybe the place that I'm trying, um, I'm aiming to arrive at is more so like being able to pause long enough, you know, going back to the mindfulness thing, giving yourself permission to pause long enough to realize what is authentic to you and what isn't. Because I think we, everything, so much of our, oh, it's the systems that are built in our society are, are structured on this one size fits all. 
idea that when you're in school, when you're aiming for certain jobs, when you're aiming for certain careers, you're kind of told where like the most worthy people are headed or should head. And the thing is that we're not, it's, we're not all one size fits all. So if you're able to stop long enough and realize like, oh, this is like what honestly, like you said, striving for joy, what honestly feels authentic to me? Like maybe I didn't need to be top of my class in chemistry because that's not what my soul was here to do. My spirit is here to, you know, to talk to people and to help infuse them with a, with, with love energy. That's a very different than sitting there and making calculations and, you know, having a nervous breakdown when I was in junior year of high school because I couldn't get my calculus. I, I, I couldn't get advanced algebra down, right? Like that had nothing to do with my type of intelligence and it had nothing to do with the gift that I'm here to give. But because of that one size fits all, it's like excellence in one way versus now I think coming in the process of really coming back to myself, I'm starting to shrug my shoulders more often of like, that, that doesn't actually apply to me. Like giving myself permission to really come to terms with like who I am and what is actually aligned for me and what I actually need. Like maybe I don't need that car. I don't need that house. Like maybe mm -hmm. I'm happy having more free time and walking around barefoot on the grass and meeting with people, you know, just getting really honest about what really fuels me up. And realizing that this comparison and this grading everybody according to the same metrics has created a system in which we're comparing apples to oranges. Mm. And so it really wor works for some people to be excellent within that paradigm because their brain was built for that. That is their offering. But mm. so many people are trying to fit themselves into these structures and paradigms that actually has nothing to do with the gift that they're here to give. And I think that has a lot to do with the burnout that ends up happening. Yeah, I wanna, you know, it's a, it's a great topic. Um, that's like, there's just so many like aspects of this, but I think like, you know, in talking about this pressure to strive for excellence or be the best or just essentially be self-sacrificial in order to excel, I think it's of, of particular importance to the BIPOC community, so Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, because, you know, that I think what, what's happening right now and part of the work that I do is an effort to dial back and reprogram what for centuries um, people in the BIPOC community have been indoctrinated to believe that rest and reward do not belong to us. And I think because of that sort of like the way these communities have been marginalized, they've been treated for centuries and because culture is passed generationally. And then there's also inherited trauma, people of color, especially, we tie our worthiness to how much we can work. And because of that situation, we work harder and faster and very often for less pay than our counterparts. Um, because again, it's survival. That's been the situation for us. Um, we've been told that the way forward, the only way an opportunity forward is just working as hard as possible. So, you know, I think especially for people in BIPOC communities, I think it's time for us to reclaim our worthiness, to redefine it, to unchain it from our ability to work, our ability to produce, our ability to, self, to be self-sacrificial. 
um, and to center our own rest, our own fulfillment, our own enjoyment uh, in the way that we deserve. And this is liberatory. And that's why it's called like tipping point liberation coaching is because I take an activist approach to um, changing the paradigm. You know, I think a little bit of my work, I don't want to call it political, but like if there's politics of the mind, I'm helping people with that, changing the politics of the mind such that you feel and know and accept that you deserve more. Not that we have to earn everything, not that we have to wait till we make partner to take that vacation or wait till I make this salary to spend more time with my child or wait till, you know, we are born deserving. You know, we can treat ourselves for no reason and we should. Um, reward isn't, you know, just for those who are striving for excellence and are the top of the class. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, it's a much longer conversation we could have, especially when you talk about it racially, culturally, ethnically. Um, but there are a lot of reasons why people feel that pressure to just perform, you know, no matter what. Absolutely. I think anybody that is a healer or a coach, um, just in this healing conversation, I believe it, should, it needs to be a requirement that they have an awareness and a substantial amount of education and know about systems. If you, if you're doing this work, it's really important that you understand systems that we're all functioning oh, yeah. in, or it can become very gaslighty for the people that are working with you. So like you can't take the individual out of context. Yeah. So within that, then absolutely there is an, an energy of activism to this work. And it's inherently, there's some politics inherent in it because we got to talk about the systems yeah. And we got, we have to talk about the inner systems that have been created and internalized because of that. And how do we start to shift that pattern? It caused, it's going to cause a change in the system. You can't move one piece of it without there being repercussions and consequences for the other parts at play. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a huge believer that, uh, we are, this, this is not an original idea, but I'm a huge believer that we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. Um, and I think we are because we have the power to reclaim rest the way we always deserved. You know, for some of us whose ancestors were enslaved or indentured or exiled from their lands or otherwise marginalized, like those people, like all they wanted to do was to be able to rest and enjoy themselves in the place that they felt like they belonged. And that was taken from them repeatedly over generations. And it's like, if they could see their lineage now, and like, in a lot of ways, like the ability to do the things that they could never do right now, we are their wildest dreams. And I think, you know, I really wanna encourage people, especially for marginalized communities. And that's not just racially marginalized. I'm talking about you know, people from, uh, disabled and other abled communities and talking about people that are um, sexual and gender minorities and talking about people that, you know, have been told at one point or another that they don't belong or they don't fit in something, you know, um, you are your ancestors wildest dreams and you're already doing better 
than your ancestors were doing. And so you should take that as encouragement and as, 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 as motivating that you can change even more of this system, that you can liberate even more possibility for, you know, the people that would be descendants from you. You know, it's a much larger project. If you zoom out and look at this longitudinally, it's like, we're not just, if we're talking about activism, engaging in the activism of this work for ourselves, it's for generations after, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it's just, it's really powerful. And it's really important. And there's like way more to it than meets the eye because we're trying to change a paradigm here in a way that's going to help us feel better and function better as humans. Yeah, I know there's an idea across many uh, original cultures, indigenous communities that anytime you're engaging in healing, you're healing seven generations back and seven generations forward. Mm-hmm. And now I still have to dive into the science of it a little more, but now there's actually scientific evidence of that through epigenetics and epigenetics, um, yeah. right. And just the understanding that we're having about how all of that is passed on at an actual biological level. So it was actually a really advanced concept that our ancestors, our ancestors had an instinctive intuitive access to. So Mm -hmm. I like that instinctive and intuitive, like even before all the high tech. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. They knew it. They knew it. I love what, Oh, go ahead. No, I love. So like, I feel like I was just watching a mini little Ted talk with you just now because my heart opened <laughs> up so wide. It, it inspires me a lot because if we can start to think about not only, you know, if we feel burnt out and we feel lost right now and we don't even know what questions to ask. I think a really beautiful place to even start asking a question is not even what do I want, but like, what do I want to see? If I could predict a future, want a future for the people who are going to come after me, what do I want their lives to look like? What do I want them to, you know, what do I like, how do I want them to feel in their daily lives? How do I want them to feel in the world and in their movements? And if we can start to think about that, then we can almost go backwards and be like, okay, how can I start making that for me? And how can I start creating spaces that feel that way so I can actually begin to initiate that movement beyond just like paying my rent and getting things done? It's like, okay, how do I want this world to actually start looking? And it can be, I want the world to start chilling out and start implementing things that are a lot, you know, less ambitious, like in terms of old world paradigm and ambitious in terms of new world spirit expanding soul resting paradigm flow mm. i know that yeah. i i know why i when i'm saying like i don't want to strive for excellence anymore and then that only leaves me with the option of mediocrity i think i've now i i know why that feels so uncomfortable and it's because by saying it in that way i'm basically confirming that there's only one way to be excellent And that if I'm not that, then I'm less than worthy, which is what we associate with mediocrity versus like, no, actually the the problem to begin with is the fact that there is a very limited definition of excellence. And that's why mediocrity doesn't fit for me where, where it's like, no, actually maybe harvesting, growing vegetables in a garden is 
an, a really beautiful version of excellence that is not just this one limited version of your working in corporate America, may, like being a partner, driving an amazing car, having it like that is very limited and it leaves out a huge portion of the population. Like maybe there is excellence when you're caring for animals. Mm. There's excellence to like passing on creative energy to your community. There's just, it's so much bigger than that. And I think it's just important for us to start taking our power back and acknowledging that the idea of what excellence and worthiness that, that was given to us is inherently oppressive because it leaves out yes. a huge portion of humanity. Yeah, maybe, I mean, and per perhaps that's by design that historically uh, excellence has, has, has been defined uh, as something that's exclusionary, you know? I mean, maybe it's set up that way such that historically the powers that be can say, oh, you're not excellent, so you're not deserving. It's just the top few that get to have all of the resources, they get to have all of the privileges, they get to have all of the rights um, because you don't fit our definition of excellence. And so that means you're not worthy. And because you're not worthy, you should accept your place wherever you are. Um, so I think Paula, you're very right. It's like about expanding our definition of excellence because it is incredibly narrow. Um, yeah, incredibly narrow. Well, I think we are rounding out to an hour. So before we begin to close up, we'd love to ask you something that we ask our guests is what is your definition of mental health? Like, what does it mean for you right now where you're at? Mm. Definition of mental, you mean of good mental health? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was like, I was like, mental yeah, health yeah, yeah. Um, what is it for me right now? And you want like personally, like for me, what does it feel like? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's, you know, I, I spend a long, a long period of time, like with poor mental health, especially because of my burnout work situation and the emotional effects. Um, I think good mental health for me is, I mean, it's very simply like feeling optimally how I would like to feel and being able to like enjoy that in a continual way, not just like one out of five days, I feel good, you know? So for me, it's like, yeah, it's good mental health is feeling optimally how I would like to feel and to be able to do that on a daily basis um, is, I mean, to do that on a daily basis is excellent mental health. But if you get like, you know, most of the days of the week, I'm, you know, I'm able to really feel the way I want to feel um, and, the way I'm living my life contributes to me feeling that way is for me as good mental health. Can I sneak a little question in before we please do? Yeah, go ahead. Go I'm ahead. very curious. Like what are some of the things that you do for yourself now that yeah. you used to not do or like, how does your life look right now in comparison to how it used to, to look like? Um, yeah. So right now I have a very non-traditional schedule um, uh, because I, work telemedicine and then I have a coaching uh, business um, I'm able to create like gaps in my schedule it's not a nine to five or nine to seven every day necessarily it does mean that I will work sometimes on the weekend and so it's like it's it's an exchange it's like I can have like today is Monday um, 
I don't have much on my schedule today other than this uh, podcast, but um, I did work on a few hours on Saturday, right? And so that's what's that's a big part of like what's different for me right now is that I don't have this grind schedule that is completely inflexible five to six days a week. Um, the other thing that, and what that allows me to do to have like agendaless spaces in my schedule, it allows me to really maintain more of a daily routine. Um, less of the self-care stuff gets thrown by the wayside. You know, I have uh, more space to be able to do that. And for me, the self-care stuff is, for instance, like my morning, my morning routine is I'm an avid tea drinker. I've had two cups of tea during this conversation. Me too. Um, yeah. <laughs> And mm-hmm. so I wake up, I have my tea, um, and I usually uh, do some writing. I like to write, and um, and then I meditate after that. So um, being able to do that every day is a huge part of my self-care and contributes to good mental health for me. Mm, okay, love that. Go ahead. Taking back your time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And a lot. Of, I want a lot of the listeners to understand that, like, you know, I'm a doctor and I had a doctor's schedule and of all the jobs out there, that's one of the ones where people really don't think that the schedule can be made flexible. You know what I mean? Like people expect really tough, inflexible schedules for physicians. And I was able to make it work for me. And I want a lot of people out there listening to this to understand that even if you feel like you're in a profession that doesn't lend itself to a non-traditional schedule, doesn't lend itself to you getting to spend more time with your children. That doesn't lend itself to you feeling healthy. Um, these things are possible. And this is, I mean, if they weren't, then I wouldn't be in business. This is the work that I do with people. So I want you to stay encouraged and to understand that you can change it and make it work for you. And so take care of all the things in your life that you want to take care of. Yeah. I think as you were talking about what, what the good mental health life is for you now, what was coming up for me is that you got there because somewhere in the glimmers of your mind, you were able to find space to give yourself permission to believe that this was possible. Yes. And so many people go through life like, and don't feel like they cannot give themselves permission to even think that. Mm. And so to just even let the thought come in, nothing else to change right now, but just allowing that thought to even enter our consciousness is the first step towards a different future. But you must be an amazing therapist because that is like really empowering what you just said. Like, that's fantastic. That's exactly it. Exactly Mm -hmm. it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. So she is an amazing therapist. She's been mine since I was zero years old. (laughs) We've been each other's. (laughs) (laughs) We love to guess people's zodiac signs before we close that out. (laughs) Okay. And before we even guess your Zodiac sign, where can people find you? Um, so you can, if you go to tippingpoint.coach, C-O-A-C-H, that's the website. Um, and right now it redirects to my, my Instagram, um, which was just recently relaunched and redesigned. So um, the Instagram has everything you need on there to like reach me. You can also click a link and schedule a free 30 minute discovery call. Um just to talk about what's going on with you and to see if like working with me would be helpful for you. Um, so yeah, tipping point.coach for me. Okay, perfect. And we'll add all of that in the show notes so people can yeah, easily access you. it. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm going to guess I'm going to go quick with this one. Cause I really feel it. Pisces. 
No. Uh, ooh! Okay, Paula, guess. Damn it. <laughs> I have two that came up for me. And I this could be my own bias of whateverness, but um Sagittarius. That was another one that actually did come up for me, but I or, or Sagittarius or Taurus. No, I'm an Aquarius. Wow. Oh my god, I swear <laughs> that was one that came through. <laughs> Oh. We need to we need to work on our party trick. <laughs> yeah, your party. Yeah. <laughs> our party trick is <laughs> needs crazy. a little bit fine tuning. <laughs> I used to be so good at this. Like I'm so confused. What happened? I wonder if it's just too much awareness mm -hmm. of the bird chart for me. I don't know. Yeah. Have you all have you all done your human design? Oh my god, I was gonna yes. ask you that, but I was like, he. Yeah. Who knows? What okay. Is, what is your human design? Can you share? both of us projectors? Really? Yeah. Interesting. I'm a reflector. That's why I thought you were a Pisces, because reflectors yeah. are very, very, very sensitive to yeah. all of the energies. And I felt I feel like an extreme to the environment. Yeah. To the environment. I feel an extreme amount of empathy in mm. your sphere. I feel. Yeah. Wow. You're a reflector. That's like the I'm rarest. Kind. It's so rare. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's an, it, the concept has been, was introduced to me, like maybe like 2012. And then it wasn't until I was like, I met a very special person who like knows a lot about the human design uh, system in Bali when it was like, this is one of my hiatuses from medicine. Um, and she sat with me and was like, you're a reflector and this is what this means. And it was like life changing. You know what I mean? Because it helped me to understand like, my sometimes intense sensitivities to the energies in my environment um, and help me to like really understand like how to interact and with, with, with like, you know, that reflectorness and like how to take care of it, you know? Cause I think most of my life I was fighting it. I was like, no, I shouldn't be feeling this way or this shouldn't be impacting me in this way. Just push, 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 get through it, get through it. And you know, that wasn't the way to like my happiness. So. Wow. I just can't believe that you had the schedule that you had and you're a reflector. <laughs> like every reflector that I've ever met um, has worked their way into the healing space and they've all either are working on or have overcome a chronic illness. Mm. I mean, my chronic illness was depression. You know, mm. I had serious depression for 10, 11 years. Yeah. It was very bad at certain points. Like my family was afraid for me and like, you know, and I can get more into it with clients if people want to talk to me and stuff. I'm happy to talk about it, but I've, I've been, been there in the very darkest of ways. So yeah. Burnout and being in environments that aren't aligned for us feed into that so much. Also yeah. like when yeah. our system feels like it doesn't have a right to honor what's right for it, it just starts shutting down. Exactly. It, it refuses. It's just it like, refuses. Nope, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a spiritual, physical, soul level thing to it's right. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not just your neurotransmitters. <laughs> no, 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 no. There are other things at play here. <laughs> so many other things. All right. Well, we uh, will give you back your time. This is so painful. I have so many questions <laughs> based off of what you just said, but I will swallow my my passion so I, I don't know if you guys like if you need a few more i have a few more minutes if you wanted to ask the questions it's fine but i don't know if you like you you need to it's up to you like i can answer more questions if you'd like because i know we got to a compelling part at the very end so 
I mean, can we have just a few more minutes, Paula? I don't know yeah. what your schedule is yeah. looking like too. Okay. Doctors, I thank you. So with your journey with depression, what, what did that look like? And how did you start to, to work your way out of it? Hmm. I think it took a long time to come out of it. Um, and I think I was very fortunate to have like a good doctor. Um, I don't want to encourage anybody listening to just deal with depression on their own. I think it's the appropriate thing is to get some help, whether it's a therapist, physician, both family members, support groups, friends that are willing to hold space for you and to maybe even physically hold you at times uh, when needed. Um, but yeah, you know, um, my depression began when I was in medical school, actually. Um, I was about halfway through. I'd started my clinical rotations. Um, and it was, it was, it was pretty intense, you know, and, but, you know, right there on campus, Dr. Lightfoot, I had, um, I had an amazing psychiatrist, um, which was like, you know, someone that really, I mean, understood what I was going through, um, and was really, uh, nurturing and, and reaffirming and was like, you know, encouraging about like getting me, uh, through the process. Okay. And how, I mean, looking back on it now, are you able to see some of the things that took you into a depression? Because, you know, I, we've both dealt with depression. And when I look at my depression, everyone told me that it was just in my family. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until after I worked myself out of it that I was like, oh, okay. I was like gravely misaligned from my spirit. And maybe it was in my family, but honestly, like, I don't need maybe 0.01% can be attributed to that, to be honest, if I look at all of everything. So looking back on yours, like, what do you see, you know, put you in that yeah. place? Uh, being in a situation that um, was at times harmful, because medical training is at times like harmful because you're not treating your body well. Um, and feeling like I couldn't change it. I'm in this behemoth of a system and I'm just this little little guy in it and I can't really change the way it's done. If I wanna become a doctor, I gotta go to go through this gauntlet. And even like early on in the gauntlet, I was in medical school, my body, my heart, my mind started reacting. and was like, you know, this is the way this is done is not feeling very good for me. So I think that was definitely part of the depression. My depression got worse in residency which would coincide with more of that feeling like you can't change the situation, getting further into the belly of the beast. You know what I mean? I was working 80 to hundred hour weeks for several years. And um, yeah, really, I think what was the most triggering for me in terms of my emotional health was just feeling like I couldn't change it. There was no chance at changing the way I was engaging with the work or with the way the work was using my mind and my body. Uh, and that was like, I think it really brought me down because I was like, man, there's just like no chance of training that changing this. Like if you don't like it, you just get out. That's it. You know, that's the only option. Um, and so I think like Paula mentioned earlier, like when there's that kind of misalignment, you know, with your heart, your mind, your body and your environment, certain things just start refusing. You're like, you know, my mind was just like, nope, you know, I'm not doing well. And you're going to know that I'm not doing well. Mm. And what started getting you out of it? 
Like when, mm. when did, what were some of the small steps that you took that ended up, you know, clicking into place for you? It, so it didn't get better during residency, right? Um, I uh, was on an antidepressant, which definitely helped get through residency. And then in t- 2014 is when residency ended for me. And graduating from residency, it was like the clouds lifted a little bit. You know what I mean? Like you can start to live more like a human being again. Uh, and that felt really good and really promising. And so, I mean, I think like 2014 was like starting to like get on the stairs and walk up out of the what felt like the basement, you know? So um, other things, when I was out of residency and had a little more control over my time, I was able to get back to like my meditation practice more regularly which is a huge part of my self-care and mental health. Um, and I think a big part of, uh, especially as a reflector, is changing my environment um, whenever I'm feeling like overwhelmed or whenever I'm feeling like um, too much of one thing, you know, being able to like take, take to have a reprieve from like what's going on or from that environment. And you can't do that in residency. But, you know, in my life after that, I'm able to take more vacations or take breaks or, you know, have weekend days where I'm not talking to many people. And I'm just like, you know, having an internal process, I think just really like being able to listen to my body more and actually heed the signs of my body was like really what helped um, turn the page on, on depression. Right. Your body saying no and you actually being like, okay, noted. We're working together now. Exactly. Then the body starts to kind of be like, okay, cool. This is a team. I don't have to, like, there's a part of us with the part that comes on really aggressively when it feels like we can't listen to ourselves anymore. And a certain learned helplessness comes in. Exactly. As soon as you graduated or right, like getting more agency over your life. Absolutely. That's the word agency. Yeah. Yeah. Really helps. Yeah. That is where I just want everyone to really hear this. You know, when we talk about, we mainly all like highlight depression and anxiety, but a million other, you know, things that can go under feeling that dis-ease inside of your body is that it just goes so much deeper than getting diagnosed and getting a medication. And I am, I was on antidepressants. I needed them in order to get to a level playing field where I I just, I needed something to poke a hole in the darkness. Mm -hmm. I had no idea where to look or even how to get there. So antidepressants really helped me with that. But then after a certain point, it's like, when do we start questioning, you know, when do we start being a little bit rebellious towards following the system and the structures that were laid out before us? I think a lot is a lot of people's depression right now comes from doing the things that they think they have to do but they don't have to do it. There is another way. There's another way. I think that because of how, I think you said like mammoth, (laughs) the systems are, that's a good word for it. It's this humongous thing. Um, Being able to get to the other side of that. I, I speaking to my own process have had to invite in a lot of surrender and patience, which the Eastern teachings were really helpful with. because it seems to be, and there's many other ways that, you know, this isn't the only way, but oftentimes it does seem to be that we get there gradually. 
by taking mm. pieces of our agency and pieces of our power back little by little. And so that it really requires holding a lot of space for any part of you that is impatient and wants to see a change overnight. Because in my experience, we're really co-creating a reality here with what's already here. So it's like, it's kind of a give and take little by little, taking back a little more power, a little more power, inviting in the idea, embodying it a little more. And then before you know it, it starts becoming exponential and showing up in your life in more, in bigger ways, that level of freedom and agency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's why things like psychedelics and then breath work help so much with this is because I think meditation is beautiful, but it can take many, 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 many years to start like chipping away, you know, and learning how to work with your thoughts and allowing them and all these things. But when you do something like psychedelics or breath work, it gives you a giant glimpse into what it can feel when all of these things have been lifted away in a very intentional, very powerful, very quick way. And can remind you Mm -hmm. what elation feels like again, even if you've been deep and dark for a long time, it can remind you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's like, especially the research coming out about psychedelics right now and anxiety, depression, PTSD. I mean, it's something that a lot of people with personal experience have known for a long time, but now we're getting like validated with randomized controlled trials and stuff that are telling us that like ketamine can be helpful and can prevent people from committing suicide that, you know, MDMA, you know, can take away someone's PTSD, you know what I mean? From like horribly traumatic events. It's just, yeah. And it can uncover traumas that you've hidden that you don't even know existed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of like the ones I'm most excited about is psilocybin. I think like, the potential with the use of, you know, psychedelic mushrooms, especially in mental health care, it's, it seems almost endless, you know, because they're finding all the time, like new applications for this, like medically, you know what I mean? So um, it's just a really exciting time to like be involved in psychedelics and medicine. Something, I mean, we haven't talked about in this conversation, but something I'm also very passionate about. I was, I was at a psychedelics conference in New York in December, and I'll be speaking at one in August in um, in Pittsburgh called Entheocon. But I'm a big proponent of the use of these medicines. I mean, especially when, like, for decades, our only uh, our only possibilities were like antipsychotics and antidepressants, and like you know these manufactured unnatural medicines which work for some people, but there's stuff out there that's better for the body in most cases um, and incredibly effective that because of stigma, we just haven't explored until now, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. I will allow it to end. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank you. much. This was wonderful. Thanks for interviewing me. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was, I've, I, I'm excited to go back and listen to it. There was a lot, a lot of really powerful notes there that can have a lot of us just start questioning, start poking holes in the matrix, start poking Mm. holes in what we've been fed and start creating a different life for ourselves. Because one of the things that breaks my heart the most is thinking about anyone getting to the end of their life 
without having really actually lived it, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with us. Yeah. Um, let's do it again. If the opportunity ever arises, this is great. I like talking to you all. I mean, my God, I literally have like 10 more questions. So yeah, it's like part one, <laughs> two, three, four, and five. So it will happen. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much for this.